Good morning. I'm going to be talking about justice today. I'm not sure if uh, it is still a thing that is done in schools as a, as a form of punishment, but, but I recall, when I was at school at least, the, the worst thing I, I always felt, the worst way of doing a punishment was if the whole class would be kind of kept behind or whatever, have to undergo this punishment until the one person who actually did the thing owns up. I just, it, to me, that is like the epitome of, of awful injustice at school. Because actually the only one that this causes harm, the only people that this causes harm to are the, are the innocent ones. It doesn't add to the punishment to the guilty, but it adds punishment to the innocent. I don't know anyway, if it winds you up, but it always wound me up um, a lot. Justice and injustice is much discussed in our world, Talk about, talked about a lot, and of course, way more serial, more serious. Serial is a combination of serious and real, but way more serious, way more real than, than what I've just said, uh, in a way that really shocks us and kind of shakes us to the core. Sometimes actually, you may find, it can be hard to not feel numb to it, you know, when, we, when you're reading the latest story or, or on the news or hearing about it. Um, but it is there. Injustice is in this world. And, you know, looking at the atrocities being committed in, uh, in Israel and Gaza and, and, and its tragic injustice going on. Closer to home recently, there was the, the murder of Sarah Sharif, this, this 10-year-old bodies found just around the corner from where I grew up in, in Woking. Or the, the, the murder of, of seven babies and the attempted murder of six other babies by a nurse in, in, in this country who was, who was in that position to do the opposite of harm those vulnerable babies, but to protect and care for them. And, and obviously, as you know, there are a number of other examples I could give. Injustice is occurring. Even if there is some legal justice, then we're still often left with a sense of injustice. And I know that these and others, they're complicated things, but these cases have happened and we react to it. People react to it rightly, not just Christians, but, but everyone. And because we react and because it gets to us, it can therefore be easy to to jump to conclusions ourselves around what justice is. You kind of think, well, this is, I, this is what I consider. But as Christians, and certainly at Grace Church, we want to think about this concept of justice biblically. It's not um, in, in the Bible, the theme of justice is not peripheral at all. Actually, the Bible is a book devoted to justice from the beginning to the end. And, and so because it's a big thing in the Bible, it's a big thing for us as well. This morning we are carrying on our series speaking into what our core values are and how that shapes what we do and who we are. I hope you're finding it all helpful. And this week we're on justice. And I'm going to do a bit of a what and a why and a how. So what, what do we mean? What does the Bible mean when, when, when we talk about this word justice? What, why, why do justice? I'll explain what that means as we go. And how, how should we do justice? What should it look like? 
We want to think biblically about justice. So, so not really well, what do we mean by it, but what does the Bible mean by justice? And then whatever that is, that is what we think about it at Grace Church as well. What is biblical justice? We tend to default to thinking of justice as fighting for legal fairness, just as in the examples that I mentioned. We, we talk about the justice system and the ministry of justice, which is all about courts and prison, punishing the wrongdoer, which, you know, I'd add we, we can only do because we believe in morality. We can only know what is wrong because we believe in what is right. C.S. Lewis would talk about you, you can't call a line crooked unless you have the concept of a straight line. We can't call anything crooked, evil, oppressive and deserving of punishment if we don't have an absolute standard of what is straight and good, right and just. Yeah, that's a bit of an aside. But biblical justice certainly includes punishing the wrongdoers, the righting of wrongs and legal fairness. But biblical justice is not just that. And when the Bible talks about justice, it includes proactive service of and, and service to the vulnerable and those in need. So biblical justice is punishing the wrongdoer, yes, and restoring the wronged. Biblically understood, you can't separate legal fairness from sharing. It's giving people their rights, whether that is punishment or whether that is protection and care. Jeremiah 22 verse 3, for example, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right, rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So in that verse we see justice and that kind of rightness. It is not just to bring justice to the oppressors, but is to proactively bring rescue to the, to the oppressed. So it's both. Don't do wrong to the vulnerable, uh, the, the fatherless and the widow. And it is do right to the oppressed. Vital when we're talking about biblical justice, it's vital that we understand this if we're going to think biblically. And so to do justice is not just to fight for it, but it is to do it by giving people their rights. And justice starts with and is defined by God, by Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who is the God of justice. And God is both retributive, which is to say that he condemns the wrongdoer and the proud, which he, he does and one day will do once for all time. And God is reparative, that is that he restores the wronged and the lowly. So that is what, that's a, that's a kind of introduction to what we are talking about when we're talking about justice, if we're going to understand it biblically. What about the, the kind of the so what? All right, that's what it is. Why though? Why should we do justice? Now, obviously, it's, it's a good idea. People think it's a good thing to do. But what compels the Christian particularly? Why is it important to us as, as a church, as Grace Church? And there's a few reasons that the Bible gives that, that to kind of to honour the image of God in people. All people are made in the image of God. And to honour that, we should do justice. To love your neighbour is one of the kind of the great 
uh, commandment to, to love your neighbor as your, yourself, love God and love your neighbor. One of the best ways is to do justice. But there, there is one dominant reason that the Bible gives as to why a Christian should do justice, and that is because of the gospel. We should do justice to others and restore the wronged because of what God has done for us. And when we are not doing justice, the root problem is not that kind of we're just not working hard enough for others, but it is that we have forgotten God's gracious rescue to us. The classic moment in, in the Old Testament when God calls his people to do justice is in Micah chapter 6. And this, this kind of scene is portrayed as a court case. Uh, and, and so Yahweh in, in the court, God, is the one who is bringing the case against the accused. And Israel, the people of God, are the accused in the case. And creation, the, the, the trees, are the witnesses, kind of hearing this case being brought. And the case is that Israel have abandoned their God and God wants to know why. So I'll read Micah 6 uh, and, and the first eight verses of Micah chapter 6. It says, listen to what the Lord says. And then God begins to bring the case. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baal, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the law require of you? To act justly, you could translate that, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So this is the case. So verse three, my people, uh, what, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me, says, says God. He is grieved that his people have abandoned him. And he talks about what he's done for them. Verse four, I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember God says. He, he longs for them to remember. The root of the problem here is that they have forgotten God's grace to save them. They've forgotten. They're not remembering what he has done for them. And then Micah uh, comes and he says, well, with what shall I come before the Lord? In verse 6. Uh, and, and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old, will the Lord be pleased with, uh, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah knows 
try as he might, he cannot do without God's personal salvation. We, we, can't, we can't save ourselves or atone for our sin. He's saying, what can I do to make up for it? I'll give, I'll give my firstborn. <clears throat> he knows, no, even that, nothing's going to atone for his sin that he can do. Our sin, which, by the way, contributes to the injustices we see in the world. No, God does not want you to work hard and sacrifice for him to make up for your sin. He wants you to know and remember his all-sufficient grace to you. And then from there, we as God's people do, verse 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Having remembered God's grace to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's not about feeling guilty that we're not doing more it is about remembering and understanding the gospel that is always the case in the bible another example deuteronomy 10 uh, 17 to 19 says for the lord your god is god of gods and lord of lords the great god mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you giving them food and clothing that is who God is. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. <clears throat> Israelites, have, they have been foreigners in Egypt. And God has liberated them. He set them free. And the reason that they should be gracious to foreigners and to the fatherless and to widows and orphans is because God was gracious to them. God defended their cause and they should do likewise. And their starting point was to remember God's salvation to them. These, by the way, these verses were written like 2,700 years ago. I, I just find it amazing that this is who God has always been. We think, oh God, this is the God. He's always been the one who upholds the cause of the vulnerable and the needy. He has always been calling his people to do justice to the vulnerable and the needy. And he's always been saving people by his grace. That was Old Testament Israel. And it was exactly the same and is exactly the same for the New Testament people of God. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We were in need. This is the gospel. We were we were poor, we were in need, we were vulnerable, and Christ was rich. He had equality with the Father in heaven, and he didn't use that to his own advantage. He didn't use it to exploit, but instead he emptied himself and he became poor for us. He didn't abuse his authority, but was, he, he was abused himself for our sake. Through his becoming poor, we have become rich. We never move on from the gospel. We never move on from enjoying God's grace and, and understanding it's, it's got to start there. Everything flows out of that. And the more we understand, the more we give our lives to getting our heads around the fact that God has been gracious to us, the more we will be motivated, necessarily. So it's not Oh, this might help. No, we cannot receive God's grace without being changed, if we're truly receiving it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith will 
produce effects. It will work itself out. And James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17 says, What good is it? This is a good kind of case being said. And What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, in real need. If, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What good is that? You're, you're a person who's received God's grace and someone comes to you who is uh, in need, who needs food and clothes, and you say, go and be well-fed and keep warm. No, that's no good. They need what you can give them. Receiving God's grace always leads to demonstrating God's grace. Or, or we haven't really received it. So if we have believed the gospel, if we are Christians and, and, and those who have enjoyed God's grace, enjoyed all that he has won for us, then if we have faith, that is to say, that will result in us doing justice. And so the flip side of that, if we are not doing justice, then the root problem is that we have not truly understood the gospel. We've not truly believed the gospel more accurately. Why, why do justice? Why should a Christian serve the needy, give themselves for the poor? Because we know and believe the gospel and the gospel of God's grace to us compels us to demonstrate that grace to others. Having enjoyed it, the gospel, we must compel us to it. It's challenging, yes, absolutely. Guilt trip, no. It's not about like, come on, you, do you, it's not about guilt tripping, it's just to say this is the gospel. We've got to believe the gospel, that's the root thing to go back to. Marveling at all that God has done. God's grace at work in our lives. Not, not we sort it out, we just let God's grace work itself out. How then? What does it look like for, for us to do justice? How should that play itself out? Christians are those who've enjoyed God's grace and that should necessarily lead to doing justice. But what does that look like? What does it mean? Firstly, I've taught broadly for Christians and then specifically for us at Grace Church a little bit. How does this play itself out for us? And I think the broad ways, I think for, for all Christians, three ways that this should work itself out. Firstly is relief. And that is, what I mean by that is, is direct aid, direct support to meet the immediate needs of individuals or, or families or communities, whatever it is. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You may know uh, the parable, maybe many do, whether or not whatever kind of experience you've had with, with church. Um, this, this story of a guy got beaten up and uh, the kind of the priest ignored him, but a Samaritan saw him on the other side of the road, this man who was left naked and half dead. And the, the good Samaritan, in the story, read a couple of verses in a moment, was less concerned with punishing the wrongdoer, right? That's not what it's about. But wanted to do justice, not by making sure that the, the guy who beat him up met justice, but to do justice by restoring the wronged. And so justice in that was just giving relief in the immediate. 
Luke 10, verse 33 to 35. So it says, he saw him, that is the good Samaritan saw the man in need, and he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and, in, and, in, and, in, and took care of him. The next day he took out uh, two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. It's just meeting the immediate needs. Today, for us, this is giving bread to the hungry. It, it's providing fostering and adoption for children who are in need. It is caring for the elderly and the lonely. It, it is providing advocacy and assistance in legal support where people are not equipped themselves to, to, to give. We financially, uh, we get regularly give financial gifts as a church to individuals and families who are in need, who just need some money to make ends meet. And the local church can be a place of literal salvation, where lives are literally saved um, for, for the vulnerable people, for vulnerable people in this way. And I'd summarise it. If, you may have heard this kind of famous proverb: if, "If you give a man, not from the Bible, if you give a man a fish, he will be hungry tomorrow. If you teach a man to fish, he will be richer forever," which is good, but he might be really hungry today. And fishing is hard, so give him some fish in the meantime, right? Yeah, let's give, but let's give him some direct relief. In light of the gospel, we are compelled to give bread to the hungry. And our great hope and prayer is that they come to know the bread of life himself, that is Jesus. But we will give them bread even if they don't accept the bread of life. So relief. Uh, second way is, is development, which is to teach a man to fish. Do both, right? So give the guy a fish if he's hungry and also teach him to fish so that he can get to a place of sustainability, sustainable living. It's giving individuals and families and communities what they need to get to that place of self-sufficiency. And uh, today, this, think of what does this mean? Is, is providing education, teaching people, providing job opportunities helping to, to find ways out of alcohol and substance abuse. Cap course is, is, a, is an excellent example of this. So it's, it's not just kind of giving poor, money to the poor, but it is helping people to get out of debt and, and where, they're, where they're racked with, with, with debt and struggling financially to teach them to come to a place of uh, debt management course, it's teach them to come to a place of self-sufficiency. This, by the way, development is all a lot more complicated and demanding and expensive than relief. Uh, but it is good. And then the third way is reform. Someone may be able to fish, but fish may not be equally available to them because of a broken system. So you can teach them to fish all you like. They could be the world's best fisherman, fisherwoman, but the system needs attention because they can't get any fish still. If there, was, um, if there was a sequel to the parable of the Good Samaritan, I wonder if it might focus on how do we stop violence? How do we just stop this from happening again? It's that sense of proactive and not just reactive. We, we need to react to where we see injustice. How do we proactively look to stop it? 
changing laws, changing systems. We must not be naive. And I think it is easy for us to be in our Western individualistic mindset and even with a kind of evangelical theology, we can get naive and think of sin in purely individualistic terms. It's all about your personal sin. And, and as if we could, we could change the world one heart at a time. You just change every individual. I've got to think more corporately that the system in some areas is broken because our world is broken. Uh, so, for example, last year in England and Wales, uh, 123,000 and 219 unborn babies were aborted uh, that last year. That, that, there were about 600,000 born. So it's, you know, over one in seven babies to be born were aborted um, in England and Wales. It was, those numbers are kind of double, that they're twice as likely in poorer areas. And so the, so the system is a bit broken. Mothers need help. Babies need help. Reform is desperately needed. It, it's tragic. A child goes into care every 15 minutes in the UK. We, we, we must help the children, right? That those in there, we can do what we can to, to help them. And we must do what we can to change things so that the, the tide turns. And this... Um, Development is more demanding, expensive, and all the rest, even even more than uh, than. So there's relief, and there's uh, development and reform. Reform is is the most demanding, but we've got to do it. Here at Grace Church, we refer to the banner under which we talk about this as our Grace Works. We've enjoyed the grace of God, which necessarily leads to works of doing justice. And the main ways that this works itself out is through individuals who make up Grace Church doing what they can to, to do justice in the community and in the world we live. Uh, we have people involved with Christians in Ukraine. We have people across our site supporting local food banks. We work with local charities like Pregnancy Options and, and a number of others. And some things, most things really, the, the way that works itself out, some things are run kind of by and run out of Grace Church. We have a group for adults with additional needs, which uh, we're keen to see grow. We call it Tuesday Group, and it meets on a Tuesday. Uh, and we want to we invest into that. We give uh, Christmas boxes to the needy, just gifts, and we'll talk about that in coming weeks. We want to keep doing that. We've hosted events on fostering and adoption, we support a number of families in that and we want to do more in that area. There's a number of things that kind of run out of Grace Church. But it's also fair to say that I think we can do more in all of our sites, actually. In, in each one of our, I feel this kind of prophetic burden for us at the moment, that in each of our sites, we could do more to be visible and be active in our local communities and have a a clearer influence in terms of serving the poor and the needy in our communities. And actually, because of the way things are working out with the preaching and things, and that, this video I'm recording exclusively for Haven't, which uh, is, is helpful because it means I can kind of get specific. I'm excited to be with you in person next week, by the way. 
uh, I think when it comes to Haven't, it would be huge for Haven't site. If we could get something consistent in the week where we are meeting the needs of the local people in, in, in need, in, in practical ways, meeting the needs practically, physically, emotionally, as, as well as spiritually, so that we are more visible and active throughout the week and not just on Sundays, not just we just kind of pop up on a Sunday, but we're, we're visibly doing things. And so that we would be missed if we weren't here. If, if we were to pack it all up tomorrow, that the community would, would miss us. I still think, I've been saying for many years, I still think that Grace Church is Haven't's best kept secret. And I don't like that title. I think people need to know. We want to be visible in a new way. And I and we are passionate to have a site and church in Haven't for the long haul that is enjoying God and his grace and demonstrating his grace to the people of heaven. Is there anything that you can dream of? Is God speaking to you? I know we can't do everything, but we, I, we can do something. That, that's a bit of the how. We're going to um, celebrate communion together in a moment um, and respond to, to this. When we come to the table... In, in communion, we, we are eating of the bread that eternally satisfies our hunger, our hunger as, as, as we eat of the bread of life. It is, it is our deepest need, our deepest hunger, and we are satisfied. It says in John 6, 33 to 35, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said, sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So as we come to the table, whatever our financial situation, however much bread we have in our cupboards, we go to him as the one who eternally satisfied, satisfies our deepest hunger and thirst. But it's not just our hunger that is satisfied at the table. We are easily outraged at injustice when it is other people. The truth is that we are not just victims, but we are sinners ourselves as well. We may feel innocent, but we have rejected and snubbed the one who has given everything for us, including our very breath. And we, we're kind of not such fans of justice when it involves our punishment. But in our own right, we all deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on our sin. And that is what we would get were it not for Jesus Christ. But when we come to the table... We are remembering that at the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath at our sin when his body was broken and his blood was poured out. We can be free and forgiven and not know judgment, but know life and freedom because Jesus took the wrath. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is Jesus so that in Jesus 
we might become the righteousness of God. God's just wrath at our sin, past, present, future. All the sins that we have committed, are committing, will commit. God's wrath at that sin was satisfied at the cross. So in communion, we express gratitude for his sacrifice and we eat of the bread of life. We, we come to the table, which is the place where both our deepest hunger is eternally satisfied and where we remember that the wrath of God at our sin has been eternally satisfied. I'll hand over to, um, to the leader in the room to, to invite you to the table to celebrate and thank God, to celebrate that our hunger is satisfied at the table and that God's wrath has been satisfied.